0: This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. Are
1: we prepared for the, the YouTube generation, I, I like to call them? Because that's the, that's the medium they're, they're, they're playing in it at this point.
0: Our suggestion is we need to uh, legislative changes and new tools to be able to help uh, the regulatory system uh, adapt. To those uh, particular environments, YouTube uh, can contribute to uh, Canadian content. You, you know, we can all post there, and it is contributing in that means right now. Canadians can. It's a, it's one of the more open systems. Canadians can uh, post uh, and receive revenue from from YouTube uh, on that uh, element. But an example in that case is how does one find uh, that Canadian story and the sea of what is available uh, on on YouTube. So, for example, that's why we've raised many concerns with respect to discoverability, is sort of the term that everybody is using uh, as to how do you find that piece of Canadian content in the plethora of content that is available. Canadian Heritage Minister Pablo Rodriguez recently appeared to preempt the government's broadcast and telecommunications legislative review panel. In his response to the panel's interim report, Rodriguez indicated that the government will move to mandate new contributions and CanCon requirements for online services regardless of what the panel recommends. While the comments signal a shift in policy, and perhaps that an election is on the way, they also suggest that the narrow view of the Canadian creative sector has taken hold within the government. New creators leveraging online platforms don't typically participate in government consultations, but that doesn't mean their voice and experience should be ignored. Ryerson University's Irene Berkowitz recently released Watch Time Canada, a report on the role YouTube plays in fostering opportunities for creators. The study found an ecosystem that provides thousands of Canadians with full-time employment opportunities and export strategies that outshine the traditional creative sector. She joins me this week on the podcast to discuss the report and what it might mean for Canadian cultural policy. Irene, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast.
1: Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm sort of awed, honoured, and uh, hope I can contribute um, as your other amazing guests have.
0: Okay, well, it's a pleasure to have you, and, and this comes at a, at a really important point in time. As, as you know, we're recording this about a week after the government's broadcast and telecom legislative review panel released its what we heard report the the actual recommendations on reforms to Canada's broadcast and telecom laws aren't scheduled until 2020 but this report kind of provides as the title suggests what they heard from the various stakeholders who participated i guess fair to say for anyone who was paying attention the the report didn't really surprise very much there are many in the cultural community in Canada that see this this review as one of their best chances for new regulation in the cultural sector, possibly mandated cancon contributions, maybe even site blocking, new taxes, and so there, there's been a lot of emphasis there, and certainly you see it in the report. But if you only read those submissions, I think you'd be pretty surprised to learn that Canada is experiencing record spending on CanCon production right now. A lot of it's supported by foreign investment, but even that is only part of the story. And one of the reasons I'm so excited to have you on the podcast is that you recently released a study that examined the role of YouTube in Canada's media ecosystem, focusing both on Canadian YouTube creators and consumers, and the data, which frankly you don't see in the What We Heard report, strikes me as incredibly important for cultural policy. So so why don't we start, it's a, a long intro, but why don't we, we start then with the background? What were you looking to study and and how did you go about doing it?
1: Well, thank you for asking that question, because um, it, ha- it, ha- it actually has an important answer, which was, um, as you know, and many other people um, who are l- probably listening know, there's been, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of reports filed on the legacy media system um, from its very beginning. Uh, probably you have also read most of the documents from 1929, as I have. And yet, you um, there there wasn't a baseline study of YouTube, which has been present in Canada since 2006, to take its place at that that table. Um, And there's a lot of generalizations made about new media giants without um, much specificity. So we wanted to uh, take a look at what is the role of YouTube in the Canadian media ecosystem. Uh, What we found was... Uh, quite remarkable. We were not experts in YouTube. As, as you know, I'm uh, more of an expert in the legacy, was more of an expert in legacy media at the time. And just uh, for further transparency to say that the report was commissioned by, by Google, um, but contains no proprietary information. We, um, there's uh, 50 charts and lots of contextual information. And unless we omitted accidentally a footnote, all of it is done by reporting our original research or um, public, public information that's adequately um, or appropriately footnoted. In fact, Google was quite explicit on numerous occasions saying that they would not want to interfere with our academic freedom.
0: Okay. So just so that we know who the the we is in this case, it's yourself, but it was also with some colleagues from Ryerson?
1: Yes, very important um, to um, mention my team. Uh, The first uh, team member is Dr. Charles Davis. Um, His credentials are uh, uh, quite um, impressive. He's the Edward S. Rogers Senior Research Chair in Media Management and Entrepreneurship. He's also a professor in the RTA School of Media and the Associate Dean of Scholarly Research and Creative Activities here. And my, um, so he, you know, you can understand this was uh, sort of the, the royal oversight um, in this report, as well as uh, our second of our third, um, of our three-part team, and Hannah Smith, who's a PhD student in communication and culture, which is the same program uh, from which I received my PhD in 2016, and she is a graduate researcher in Audience Lab, which is a, you um, An initiative started here um, at Faculty of Communication and Design to study um, audiences with data, Um, both qualitative and quantitative um, research is, is done here.
0: Okay, so you so that, thanks. Want to make sure that we, we give credit to to the full team, and I'm glad that you that you noted that Google provided support but had no input in terms of uh, the outcome and the research itself. in In what's a lengthy report, so almost 135 pages, sort of lays out the data that you found. Let's let's talk just that's the the why that as a, an area that's not well understood and the who that was involved. What did you go about doing as part of the study?
1: Well, we, we took a look at the um, the key the key stakeholders in YouTube, um, and with an eye on understanding um, r- what stakeholders are most often reported on in in the legacy reports and we decide to take a look at the audiences or consumers and the creators because they are, the creators are obviously the focus of mo- of much of the uh, regulation and, and discussion in the, in the legacy system. Um, there is a third stakeholder in YouTube, which is the advertisers. Um, and that, that part may be, may be coming um, eventually, but um, we, we, we started with this, uh, it was a big job. As you can see, the results were big. Also we did, we ended up doing two surveys, uh, one with, of uh, consumers. We did that. We did that first. Cause it was a bit easier, um, from a process point of view. And that had 1500 responses with, um, a, uh, a demographic that was, um, the same as StatsCan, which we requested. And then we also did a, um, a, a study of, a survey of, cre- of uh, with creators. And that, um, what, that has around 1,200 responses. And we ended up with a data set that was not, certainly not big data, um, but it is, for surveys, it's quite a large data set. And we, um, we proceeded to crunch the data and understand what our results were
0: okay so 1200 c- c- Canadian creators working on on YouTube does sound like a really large sample size uh, once you crunched some of that data what are some of the some, some of the conclusions that you're able to come to in terms of just the s- scope or size of of Canadian creator presence on YouTube
1: um, yeah so let me let me just respond to sort of um uh, instinctively to you, the first part of your question, and then I'll get to the key takeaway, which is that um, by definition, the creator survey had to be uh, self-selected because it had to be anonymous. So um, we we were kind of amazed because we had heard that these kinds of surveys get one or two percent response. We weren't really sure if we were going to get anyone. Um, and as we saw these results coming in, um, we were we were quite uh, happy to be working with Asking Canadians, um, the subsidiary of Delvinia, who um, administered these surveys. As we saw the results coming in, 200, 300, 600, 800, we were quite amazed and it led me to think that we had struck a chord with Canadian creators on YouTube who really wanted to tell their story. So thus said... Um, that, that's not, those are not the results. Um, there are, in the report, I'm sure you saw, there's 21 value propositions, unique value propositions that YouTube um, seems to be um, offering into the Canadian uh, media marketplace. I, we were, I was quite amazed as I went through and, and sort of tried to deduce each um, part of the report and I realized that, wow, this is actually for real. Um, And then I tried to reduce it further into five insights and one key takeaway, which I'll just tell you what that is, because then we can unpack that according to what you find um, most compelling. So um, we found that YouTube, in addition to facilitating the rise of a new group of Canadian creative entrepreneurs, that's 160,000 of them by our estimation, they are inventing totally new forms of popular content. YouTube has also resulted in significant outcomes with respect to those creators, with respect to diversity, employment, domestic popularity, global export, Canadian creators lead the platform, um, and global access. And furthermore, YouTube has achieved these results without requiring either the transfer of IP rights from creators, which, as you know, is a highly controversial issue, aspect of the legacy system and largely in the absence of public funding and its associated costs, which has been pegged by the former chair of the CRTC at $4 billion per year. The other thing is that we ask Canadian consumers about Canadian content. I think that there's a lot of discussion about Canadian content, but I'm not sure many studies have actually asked Canadians whether what they think what and what, what their practices are around it. So, ninety percent, almost ninety percent. I think it was eighty-eight percent of Canadian consumers do not search for Canadian content on YouTube. And in our almost nine thousand qualitative responses from these surveys, because both surveys had a few qualitative questions, the consumers made it very clear why: is that they're searching for content that either helps them learn something, they're searching, or they're searching for the content they want and they don't really care where it comes from.
0: Okay. Uh, I mean that's, that's interesting consumer data and perhaps we can come come back to some of the, the public's perspective on that. I, w- I want to drill down, focus a bit more intently on the creator side, of course, because that's where so much of that policy for better or worse is focused when we start thinking about CanCon and cultural policy, although one would have thought that you'd be interested in what, Canadians themselves are interested in. Uh, but let's try to better understand the creator side, because that, that 160,000 creators is a is a big number. Of course, the question that, Im- that immediately follows for many in the sector would be, well, how many of those people are are able to generate some revenue coming out of that, if not as a full-time career, at least as a source of revenue? Do you have some sense of the data in terms of how many are sufficiently successful to be part of the partnership programs that then lead to the prospect of, of revenue.
1: Yes. Um, that, that's obviously very, very important. Um, mindful that YouTube is a, a startup culture, um, that about 25% or around 40,000 Canadian, um, creators are what's called eligible for monetization, which is, um, means they can join, they're eligible to join the pla- the partner program, which, um, means around 1,000 subscribers, a certain amount of watch time, and um, obeying, and no strikes against them in terms of their adherence or obeying the community guidelines that, that YouTube sets.
0: We see large numbers of Canadian creators succeeding on YouTube, but the report does a really nice job of highlighting some of the major success stories, some of, some of whom are household names, but a bunch, unless you're, I guess, in the space, aren't necessarily so. But They've got enormous numbers of, of views and presumably generating some significant revenues. Can you tell us a bit about uh, some of the YouTube stars, as it were, that, that come out of Canada?
1: Oh, I, I would love to. I'm actually glad that I didn't meet these people in person till the launch of this report because – Anyone would fall so in love with their exuberance and energy that I wouldn't have been able to maintain my scientific creat uh, objectivity during the preparation of the research. Um, well. You know someone like Shawn Mendes or or Justin Bieber. These are household iconic names in Canada. Um, What everyone, what people don't know, is someone like Shawn Mendes actually learned how to play the guitar on YouTube. There's another household name is Lily Singh, who started as a a funny and charming girl from Scarborough, who has now made it to the top of royalty um, in in the legacy entertainment system. Who who just recently. has been named as the uh, host, first only female host of a late night show on uh, NBC. There, There is uh, Lewis Hilson Tegger.
0: Today is the day that the smartphone game changes. In front of me, I have the future. And it's in the form of the Find X. This thing's been top secret, and for good reason, because it changes everything.
1: Unbox Therapy is the top technology platform on the in, technology channel, excuse me, on the entire platform. There's Gigi Gorgeous. My camera became my therapist and YouTube became my diary where I would post everything. If your parents don't get you, if your friends think you're weird, I love you and I want you to be exactly who you want you to be. Who is the top transgender uh, transgender creator on the entire platform. There are um, so many creators with billions of views, such as uh, How to Cake It.
0: Welcome back to How to Cake It. I'm Yolanda, and this week I have caked a juice box, a giant juice box that you can take back to school.
1: Which is a lifestyle um, platform started by a group of um, Canadian creators whose, frankly, their show was was cancelled, and Yolanda Gamp has become um, a top uh, creator uh, on the channel. There's fascinating export stories. Um, the, um, the icing artist.
0: Look how cute he is.
1: <laughs> we're making mini cakes. My name is Laurie and you're watching the icing Artist By, uh, by Laurie Shannon and her, her husband, they were both cabinet makers. They literally learned how to decorate cakes on the platform. And, um, they, she started this channel and she discovered through data analytics at, on YouTube studio that she had a lot of audience in uh, the Middle East and realized, well, she'll take away herself talking and she'll add subtitles, which is easy to do on on uh, on the platform that's, that's also enabled. And she saw her audiences go from 30, her subscribers go from 30,000 to a million. Now she has 3 million. Her husband and her have both. Quit their day jobs. We see this a lot, and they are supporting their family um, from YouTube. Uh, there are just there's Vanos Gaming, who probably um, is a as a Evan Fong from Richmond Hill. Hey, what is up, guys? So today I have some Ghost Recon Breakpoint gameplay, and I'm playing with my friends Wildcat, Moo, and Azers, who launched his um, show on gaming. Do you, you, I don't know if you know that. Gaming on YouTube isn't gaming. It's channels that watch. It's videos that you're watching other people playing video games. It's gigantic. Anyway, he has billions of views, and he is actually um, earning. He had earned two seventeen million in two thousand and eighteen, making uh, him the seventh highest paid YouTube star ever. Um, I the list could go on. Um Canada, what, what we found in terms of the export data was that Canadian creators, um, as I said earlier, not only lead the platform in export, but they have actually transformed historic disadvantage, which is being next to the U.S., if not uh, a key motivator for the entire policy framework for the 20th century, they have transformed that into a remarkable competitive advantage. And they are monetizing that, you know, like crazy. Okay. And I'm
0: I'm assuming that on the monetization side, and I know that your report indicates that while some are generating less than $10,000, you've got uh, sizable percentage of those that are able to generate revenue, generating a hundred thousand dollars or more. It's it's you know, the millions, of course, are, are are a small number of people, but nevertheless, people literally being able to 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 make this their full time occupation, to live off their creativity this way, is is an amazing thing to see. And, and the report talks about not just about money that gets generated through advertising, but brand deals, sponsorship, appearances, book deals, all of these become part of the norm for some of the creators that that find uh, or that establish a global presence.
1: 100%. In fact, thank you for, for connecting those dots because we started out with the revenue sharing and exactly as you just said, we found that it's the norm even very early on people are um, using a, a variety a highly creative variety of revenue streams to 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 monetize their their work on YouTube um, for instance um, it's not all about subscriber numbers sometimes uh, we, we came across a channel and I won't uh, I won't uh, violate privacy but um, that only has 50,000 subscribers which doesn't seem a lot. Uh, compared to hundreds of millions, if not billions, for, for other uh, creators, but they are supporting a family of four because the advertising, um, um, the type of advertising that that this channel um, appeals to—family advertising, Home Depot, Walmart, tube are high high-paying advertisers, and so there are many many routes to, uh, success on YouTube and these, the, um, level of excitement about their work is positively contagious. Um, so, I mean, overall our, for me, the key, a key takeaway was, um, I wouldn't say that our study is, a RCT or random clin- randomized clinical trial of what would happen in the absence of protection or support, but you couldn't do that anyway. But it is somewhat um, sort of like that because here we have Canadian creators sort of l- let loose naked into the global into a global platform, and if it comes down to whether protectionism or competition builds strength in terms of content that is popular, well, it seems like we have an answer because Canadian creators truly are thriving on YouTube. Um,
0: I'm, you know, I'm glad that, that you now you made that connection because that, that's really, when we're talking about law and policy, that's kind of, in a sense, the next question. Once you've managed to of canvas the waterfront of what's taking place in YouTube, and and the report goes into far more detail on on a lot of these kinds of issues, uncovers this this thriving ecosystem with thousands of Canadians succeeding. The question, if you're on the broadcast telecom review panel or government or policymaker or someone who is concerned with what cultural policy looks like, is whether or not uh, you need policies that are responsive to this. And what it sounds like you're suggesting is that we've seen this kind of success really in the absence of those sorts of policies. This is this is in a sense that opportunity to compete on the global stage, and doing so without new kinds of taxes or mandates, but rather doing so by the kind of creativity and uh, finding an audience. But,
1: well, finding an audience. I mean, a case, a strong case could be made that for the 20th century, it was building an industry on the broadcaster side and on the independent production side. And those, all those quotas, um, and regulation. I mean, clearly the framework wasn't, was brilliant, you know, beginning with, uh, you know, the sort of, I call the two, the two pillars are really simultaneous substitution, which delivered 30% of a boost to the broadcasters. And then on the other hand, we have the 30% investment. And then we have the independent production community that is sort of, uh, anchored by the point system, which took four years. I'll just say that those were 20th century goals in the 21st century. Um, Those are the. That's not the challenge. The challenge is uh, the the market is global.
0: I did I did want to make sure to ask whether or not you asked about regulation. So, you know, we could see how this has succeeded in the absence of regulation. Did you ask those that are actively engaged in this whether or not they pay attention to these policy issues, whether they think regulation is needed? They haven't been a vocal part of the policy process to date, but is this something that they think very much about or they're just busy creating?
1: I think that, well, we did ask, we did ask one question um, of creators and we also asked about, asked it to consumers. We were careful not to take up too much time in the surveys with too many of these questions. Cause as you just indicated, most people um, in the industry and in the world just want to pay their mortgage Get through their day, and they're not thinking about these issues the way you and I might. Uh, as a giant, fascinating puzzle that needs to be rejigged for the 21st century. But we did ask. Um, we did ask um, creative. We did ask creators that whether their content, um, if their content was promoted in Canada, but. That meant it was demoted in other countries, which would which would be the type of thing that would happen because the platform is global. Um, they what how this would impact their experience, and the answer was overwhelmingly negative because they depend on these larger markets to fund their Canadian creativity, and they depend on these audiences. We also asked consumers about whether they thought the government should have a role in in regulating what they can see on on YouTube, and um, what they felt was that um, 65% of Canadians consumers uh, value YouTube as the best place to watch the same video as anyone else in the world, um, and they were um, and the majority also believe that. Also, 65% no government or other organization should determine what they can watch on YouTube. Now, we asked that in the context of YouTube. We didn't ask it in the context of um, protections around um, harmful content um, defined, you know, in in many different ways. So, I want to be clear about that. But it seems that you know, in terms of YouTube's ability to leap the walled garden. Um, Canadian consumers and Canadian creators are quite protective of their right to access the global market.
0: Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much.
0: That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. That's L-A-W-B-Y-T-E-S at P-O-Box dot com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at Law Pod or Michael Geist at M. Geist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at MichaelGeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The LawBytes Podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron Leboy.